Uh, as, we, as we read, remember, we're reading God's word. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, were the, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamis, the magician, for that, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as missionaries. You may be seated. Thanks, guys. How's everybody doing? It is a packed room. Hello down there. You are close. My name's Josh. I'm on the teaching team, one of the pastors here, and I get to unpack this passage for you. So uh, this is a fun passage because it's kind of a turning point in the book of Acts. It's uh, the church at Antioch now is going to be highlighted uh, primarily throughout the rest of this book. So I wanted to, as I was preparing for this, I was curious, you know, as Antioch's a missionary uh, sending foundational church, where do you think the first church in Arizona was? What's the oldest church? It doesn't have to be living currently, but where do you think the, the first church in Arizona was? Shout out your answers. I won't give you a candy bar or anything, but someone said Prescott. Here. Here. Like Queen Creek, yeah. Gateway, but Tombstone is close. It's Tucson. So here's the church, no longer a church. It's a mission. That's St. Xavier's mission started in 1797, which if I remember my history, Arizona became a state like 1912-ish. Am I right, sixth graders? That's something you have to learn that you forget later. I think that's right. Uh, 1797. Here's what I love about this. St. Xavier's mission. I love the name because mission implies either they were a mission sent from somewhere else or they're currently on mission to somewhere else. Namely, this is just south of Tucson, the Native Americans of southern Tucson of that day. They are on mission. They are moving. And that's what we're going to see in this church at Antioch, that God is on the move. Are we going to join him as he goes on the move? So there's a 
church historian who writes a lot, and he says this about the New Testament church. Uh, Justo Gonzalez says this. Now, talking about Luke, the author of this book, will deal almost exclusively with the church in Antioch and its missionary work. Not because it was the most ancient, the richest, or the most powerful, but because it was the one that responded to the new challenges of the time. So Antioch kind of comes to light now, and it gets prominence now in Luke's mind as he writes the book of Acts. And the church at Jerusalem, which has all the apostles there, all the big names there, Antioch gets highlighted now because they are responding to what actually needs to be responded to in this New Testament era. So here's my big idea, if those of you like to take notes, it is this. The church is not an insider-focused institution, but rather an outsider-pursuing movement. The church is not an insider-focused institution. It's an outsider-pursuing movement. That's God's heart. That's God's heart for the church in Antioch. That's God's heart for us here at Gateway. That being said, I wanted to pray for our time uh, before we dive in. So will you bow your heads and pray with me? God, your church is a, is a living, active entity here on earth. And it's what you set up to be your hands and feet and voice. We're the ones that are to go. You sent us to Gateway. God, pray that we would listen and hear. We listen in on this conversation of this early church in Antioch, and we'd learn from them. And we'd be moved by how we see you moving. And we'd be stretched beyond what we're currently being stretched as, God. We want to be used for your kingdom in this place, God, and whatever other places you'd have for us. So speak to us again this morning. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's how I'm going to break this down. Six observations of the church Antioch. We're just going to, that section on Paul going out, I'll cover that, but that'll be brief. I'm mainly going to kind of hone in on the church of Antioch. Six observations. What do we see in this church? And then I have two questions for us at Gateway. Six observations of this church at Antioch, and then what questions would God want us wrestling through here at Gateway? So that's what we're going to do. Uh, that being said, you just read the passage, but I want to read the first part again just to have it fresh in our minds. So starting in verse 25 of chapter 12, this is how that last section ended. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So they're out kind of feeding hungry people, taking care of the poor. They returned to Antioch with Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That's the church of Antioch. So here's my first observation I see as I read through this. The leadership was diverse. This is a very diverse place. Verse 1, you see it right out of the gate. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and there were teachers. And there's apostles because Saul's included. They had a diversity of gifting. What's a prophet? It's someone who hears from God, hears a word from the Lord, and brings it to whoever God wants them to bring it to. They had folks like that. They had teachers. Who's a teacher? A teacher is someone who loves to drill down deep into God's word and share it with God's people. Oh, kind of an overly simplistic way to think about it is prophets are kind of new-focused 
What's God doing now? Where's God sending us now? What's he doing now? What's next? What's next? Teachers love to take God's people and just care for them and love them through the unpacking of God's word. On staff, we have guys and girls with different flinches, different gifting, different personality traits. Some of us like to go out and move towards new people. I personally love to think about the person who's walking into church who's hungover, who's never walked into, who just has no concept of what church should be like. I just love thinking about that person. Those are, those are the friends I grew up with. Those are the people I'm comfortable with. I love thinking about people who have no categories of church. There's some people on staff who love to care for and shepherd God's people. And they will be with you through everything. And they will walk with you and care for you and shepherd you. Is there ever tensions that are going to arise with somebody who wants to constantly be taking care of the flock we have and somebody who's constantly thinking about the flock who's not here yet? Yes. Diversity is the best thing, though it's rarely the easiest thing, and that's what we see in this church. There's a diversity of influences and voices and giftings, just in their spiritual gift makeup. But it's more than that. It's cultural. Keep reading through this. We've got the list of how everyone kind of shapes up culturally. It says Barnabas here is one guy. He is a Jew from the island of Cyprus, which we'll see later in this passage. So we got a Jew, an island Jew, a Bob Marley Jew we got. We got Simeon, who was called Niger, which means black, which means more than likely he was a black African. We got that guy. Lucius of Cyrene, that's modern-day Libya, who was also African, but probably from an area where it's not dark-skinned Africans, it's lighter-skinned. So you've got different ethnicities, ethnicities Wow, from the continent of Africa already. You got the Cyprus Jew, you've got a black African, you've got an African who's from a different area, different shape, different way of thinking. Right out of the gate, this is the church. Manian was of a royal family. It says he was a lifelong friend of this Herod guy. That Herod guy is the guy who had John the Baptist beheaded. So you've got island Jew, African, another African. This guy who grew up around royalty and around the higher class of society, around the influential and then you've got Saul of Tarsus, who was a Roman Jew. How did this happen? How does this church start off so diverse? The church in Jerusalem is the 12 apostles, Jewish, surrounded by many more Jewish leaders, Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. And then you've got this church to the north, Antioch, so diverse right out of the gate. We read about it in the book of Acts. Basically what happens, Acts 8.1, we saw this weeks and weeks ago. Saul is destroying the church, killing people. He has Stephen killed. And it says in Acts 8.1, Saul approved of his execution. And then there arose that day a great persecution against the church. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except for the apostles. So Christians flee with the exception of the core 12. They're gone. You read further, Acts 11, they spread throughout up to Antioch, where they were preaching to Jews, the Hellenists, and basically to anyone who would listen. So we just prayed for Turkey. We have an Iranian church in Turkey that's much like this church in Antioch. People on the run, scared for their lives, they're in survival mode, they gather together, and God starts to use this very diverse church. So the first observation, I don't want just, it's very diverse. Tim Keller says it this way. Think about the cross-pollination that happened with their leadership. You've got folks from all over the Mediterranean. 
Think about how much they rubbed up against each other when they said, what's the most primary need right now? And you got the Cyprus Jews saying, the Jews in Cyprus. And you got the Africans saying, my friend's back in Africa. And you've got Saul of Tarsus saying, Tarsus in Rome and all, all these other places. You got the Menean who has this influential background saying, I need to go to my influential friends, the political people who have the clout and power. And they've got to wrestle with it. That's a good thing. Because no single homogeneous group has the answers to everything. God brings them together and they cross-pollinate and they have to say, God, what do you have for us? And they've got to listen to each other as well as the Lord. So the first thing I see is they have a diversity of leadership. Here's the second thing I see. They were practicing basic church routines. This is the most fascinating thing as I've studied this. Antioch's the church that begins missionary sending of all other churches. You would think the way they got that way was by prepping for it. They studied, they studied the map, they learned the languages, they learned about these cultures, they did these boot camps for evangelism and crossing cultural boundaries, they were doing all this stuff. That's not what you see. You see a church doing church in a very basic sort of way. Vince Lombardi is one of the greatest football coaches ever. And the story goes, he starts off every football camp at the beginning of the season with this. He grabs a football. Gentlemen, this is a football. We run the football. We throw the football. We tackle the guy on the other team that has the football. This is football. And I wish just deep down that Antioch had more to present. But it's like you watch a church saying this is a football. We're just going to do the basics. What are these basics you see here? If you go to verse 2, you start to see it. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said this, speaks to them. Then verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Three things I see here. They worship the Lord. Literally, the wording is they are serving the Lord. It's where we get the word liturgy. They are doing church services. They're coming together and they're deciding how many songs front end, how many songs back end. Should we have them kneel? Should we have them stand? Who's going to read? How should we? When should we cut it off? We, how do we serve the Lord? We want to offer this to. It's just a church service. They are serving the Lord together. They come together. We exist as a church because of Antioch. And if we go to this passage, they were just doing church. Liturgy. They were serving the Lord. You also see they were fasting. It says that they're twice. What is fasting? For those of you who like simple definitions, they stopped eating and they stopped drinking for a season. How terrible does that sound? <laughs> but they just said, we want to hear from the Lord. We always are going to have these cheeseburgers. They didn't have cheeseburgers in the Middle East. Hummus. Let's set the hummus aside. Put your cucumbers down, Saul. Put your pita bread away there. Let's come together and say no to these things for a season. Because God's going to speak to us as we set those aside. And then finally, there's prayer. The prayer at the end, verse 3. Praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Prayer is simply talking to God listening to God. They did these things communally. It's just fascinating. Think about the impact Gateway could have. All these new homes are popping up everywhere. We're back to being an awesome state to live in. Everyone's moving here. We're building houses again. Everyone's going to move to Arizona. Whoop-de-doo. 
what's Gateway going to do about it? Antioch says, we just got together and we did church. We served the Lord in our services. We prayed and we fasted. They did basic, basic routines. That's just pretty wild to me. It, it gives no indication that this was like a special service. This is just kind of how we went about our business. We did basic church routines. That's the second thing I see. Here's the third one. They were sensitive to the Spirit's voice. They weren't just gathering just to gather. They had an expectant collective heart to them. You see it there. While they were worshiping the Lord, verse 2, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Here's just a little kind of nuance spot. Has God spoken to us? The answer is yes. The most full revelation we have of God is his Bible, which he's given us. Does God still speak? Yes, his spirit's still alive and active and in our hearts. Does God speak to everything we want him to speak to? The answer most definitely is no. Does he care about everything? Absolutely. Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But here's just, as I think about my life, I think about the church, most of the like consequential decisions, the big moments, the, the fork in the road moments of my life, of my family's life, of this church's life, there's no clear edict from the Lord. There's no gateway book in this Bible that says, here's the very next step you need to take. There's no book written to the Watts. Here's what you need to do. Leave Texas, go to Arizona. God never wrote that down anyway. That's just interesting. So I wrote down two categories. Here's the two categories. There's areas where God will just never give you a clear voice. And some of us so desperately want that, I get that. Dating's a little bit like this. Sorry, young people, like you want to say, oh, what's the will for my dating life? Bring her to me. <laughs> Here's my dating philosophy. Find the prettiest girl, ask her if she loves Jesus, and pounce. Boom, 10-year anniversary this summer. <laughs> Could I have married other people? Yes. Could Aubrey have married other people? Yes. That's weird, but that's just how it works. There's some things that are so clear in Scripture. This is how I want you to do it, and there's some things that God says, I care about you and I'll walk with you through it, but take your pick. Which blonde do you find the prettiest, Josh? <laughs> that one. Go for it, son. Now, in the church, are there things that we wish he'd tell us? Yes. Some of our biggest decisions, joining redemption. We started as an autonomous church plant, and the elders had to pray and fast and think about, do we want to join up with redemption? And they moved. What do we want to do after Perry? Oh, we found this warehouse. God didn't write that down anywhere. What do we do now? We've got a lease that's over here. We're, we're, we're growing. We're in this area of town. We want to be a, a staple here. Well, what do we do? We seek the Lord the best we can and try to listen to what he says. And sometimes he won't say anything. In this case, the elders felt like they prayed and prayed. You know, how big of land? I don't. And they came to 10 acres. Why? I don't. Was that wrong? No. It's just how it went about. And you see this church here. They were sensitive to God's voice. What's next? And they wanted him to speak and they wanted to move. Not in a, like a constricting way we only want to do exactly what's next on your list of demands but we just want to be 
urged by you to move to where we're supposed to be moving. And that's what you see in this passage. It's, here's the other thing I'd say. It's God's grace that he doesn't specifically lay out how this spirit speaking moment happens. Did God speak to one sort of prophetic person in their quiet time? And that person joined a leadership meeting and said, I have a word from the Lord. Maybe. Was God in the service with them and spoke collectively to everyone that was serving the Lord, worshiping the Lord that moment? Maybe. Did he speak to a, a small group of people and they moved? Maybe. It's God's grace that he didn't lay it down exactly because you'd have churches for the next thousands of years sizing each other up based off how God spoke to them. Well, look how he spoke to Antioch. How'd God speak to you? The Antioch way or the non-sanctioned way? It wasn't the Antioch way. I figured you look like a church that's not sanctioned by the Lord. <laughs> how is he going to speak next to Gateway and what we have next? But we want to be sensitive. We want to move where God has us move. We, this church was sensitive to their, all we know is God spoke, they heard, they prayed a little more, and then they moved. It's a pretty simple passage. Here's the next thing we see. They were willing to give away their best. I love this. They, while they're worshiping, the Lord said, give away Barnabas and Saul. It's as if, in our context, we were told by the Lord, send Luke Simmons to Florence with Matthew and Seth. Go. What? That's who got sent away. Like the guy who wrote most of the New Testament and Barnabas, who's this son of encouragement, this guy who is with all these missionary movements along with the ride. He is a perfect team member and God sends them away. And why do I say they're willing? Because at the end of verse 3 here, it says, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Laying hands on is a way to say, we're in this. So I don't know who the Spirit spoke to, but when they brought it to everyone, the response was, let's pray a little more, fast a little more. Everyone come in, lay your hands. We're sending away our best. Michael Jordan and LeBron James are no longer part of this place. We're sending them away. <laughs> they're gone. Seth came from a church in Tempe, Grace Community Church. And they were in a series and the pastor there told him, I want you to pray that God would take you wherever he wants to take you. Just pray that, pray that prayer over your life the next couple weeks. And Seth prayed it. He said, I'm going to Gateway. Seth is an amazing leader, amazing preacher, great all-around guy. Can lift a lot of weight. There's a lot of things he's good at. <laughs> and Grace Community said, Go. He could have been their pastor for the next four decades. Go. They're willing to give away their best. That's what we see at this church at Antioch. Here's the next one we see. They didn't have all the answers to the next phase. How do I know that? Verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 3. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for what? For the work to which I have called them. What's that work? The best I can gather is when Paul gets converted a couple chapters prior, Jesus says this, go, you're a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and I will show you how much you must suffer for the sake of my name. You're gonna go to Gentiles? That, well, thanks for narrowing that down, God. That's everyone, that's not a Jew. <laughs> kings, okay, which ones? Just go. Children of Israel, so now I have all the Jews too. Thank you, Lord, for really honing this in on what's next. 
and you're going to suffer a lot. Appreciate that. Nice exclamation point on my calling in life. Preach to everyone and you're going to suffer. I hate driving with, I don't have my phone on me, but Google Maps directions is just a terrible thing for someone like me because my wife's holding the phone and not letting me look at it because she wants to be a good wife and keep me from being distracted. And I've got to get to where I want to get to by just listening to the next prompt Turn right in 75 feet, okay? What's next? I'm not going to tell you until I'm like 20 feet away from the next turn. <laughs> That's stupid, really stupid. I want to see the whole map, know exactly, that's where I'm going, here's where I'm at, here's all the possible options and be in complete control. Aubrey, I got this. At least Arizona, I live in a place where I don't need Google Maps much. But if I lived in California, I would be a hot mess, just angry all the time. Because I've got to listen for someone to prompt me way after I want to actually be prompted. It's terrible. In my morning quiet times, I'm reading through the book of Deuteronomy. And God has them in the wilderness, 40 years, just moving around. And I read this section that was so interesting. God basically exactly describes their wanderings through the desert. And they moved 75 kilometers, making the details part up, north. And they stopped for 17.5 hours. And then they went right for two feet. And then they stopped. And then they went backwards. And then they stopped. What's interesting is that passage is written after it actually happens. The way it actually happens in real time is God says, follow my presence. There's a cloud, there's a fire. When I'm moving, follow me. When I stop, set up camp. It's Siri, walking along. You're not in control of the destination. You don't even know the destination. You're just following. And with Saul and Barnabas, he says, set them apart. They're going. To the Gentiles, to the Jews, everywhere. They're going. What's next? What's next for Gateway? He's not always going to give us a very clear picture. Here's what's next. But this church was willing to send out their best and willing to send out their best to an unknown territory. It's just kind of sweet, I think. Here's the next one I see. It's the final one. They sent people with gospel grittiness. I'm going to read the first part of this last section, verse 4, and down to about verse 6. Let's read this. So Barnabas and Saul sent out. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician and then I'll stop there, and there's an interaction there. What do I mean by gospel grittiness? Gospel is good news. They went with good news. They went to the synagogues. Apparently on this island of Cyprus, there was a lot of Jewish people, so much so that they had multiple synagogues. They go there and they say, hey guys, you know the old covenant that you're used to? Abraham, Moses, Noah, all these big guys. There's a new guy and he's completed everything that should have been completed. He is wonderful and he is great. Trust Jesus. He is the Messiah of your faith. They bring good news. Where? It says they covered the whole island. So how many interactions is it walking around to all the synagogues, interacting with people on a daily basis? Probably thousands of interactions. And Luke, the author, gives us one highlighted one from this Cyprus moment. And it just gets to that word grittiness. It wasn't all success. There was opposition. There was satanic opposition. There was just 
realistic opposition that life is hard. There was a million reasons given to them to quit. And they had this grittiness to them. And here's what just stood out to me. Verse 9. In the midst of this opposition from this guy named Bar-Jesus, he's basically this magician. He's, he's a really worldly guy. The way I told the first service, he's like somebody who would love being in Sedona. Like Sedona's the hot spot of humanity. You know those people. Some of you maybe are those people. You can talk to me after. <laughs> like whatever's new and fresh and spiritual and just kind of take whatever. He's, he's a magician. He's kind of hedging his bets with his own sort of way of viewing religion. He's with the proconsul, so he's hedging his bets with the, the political influencers of the day. He, he's a worldly guy. In Paul, verse 9, but Paul, Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at him intently and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, proclaims the gospel, and at the end we see that the proconsul was astonished with the teaching and beliefs. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaks condemnation, at least in a temporary way, on this guy. You will be blind, and he goes blind for a temporary season. Christian missionary work is not always successful the way we'd want it to be successful. It's hard. The Apostle Paul deals with opposition. Every one of us, we know this. It's going to be hard work. And yet there's a grittiness to them. They go out and they cover the whole island in the midst of opposition and some successes. So that's the church in Antioch. I've loved studying it. Here's my question now. What do we as Gateway take from this? How do we read this and have it influence our hearts and influence how we view this place, this church, these people here. I originally had three questions that I was going to ask, and I dropped one. One of them was, how generous are we? And the more I kind of put this together and was asking the Spirit to speak to me, generosity has just kind of always been in this DNA of this church. Like some of you, my wife grew up in church, so she likes reading church programs. I've never once probably looked at our church program except for when I come up here to do announcements. But she looks at the giving, and she's like, oh, we always give way more. I'm like, really? I have no idea how much we give. I, I just don't get it. But we give over and above. We are generous. So every time we do an M25, we are generous. So the generosity of Antioch, I think we can match. But there's two things I want to ask us and just camp out and finish our time here. Here's the first question I have. How ready are we ready for what I just say what God has next say that's a very broad question yeah but Antioch did not get ready by mastering the missionary pamphlet of the Mediterranean area they didn't learn languages that we see here at least they don't highlight it they weren't studying how to cross cultural boundaries. They were showing up, doing church, foregoing some meals, and praying earnestly. How ready are we for what God has next? We did this Q&A last week, and I don't remember what service, but somebody asked, what would you think God would tell this church right now? And Luke Simmons said, I think he would tell us, our people, to go to church. 
And I know Luke, and that's not a pastor trying to pad his stats or something, so there's more numbers here. That's a shepherd, a man who loves his flock, loves the Lord, and knows that God works as we gather here together consistently. I'm a youth pastor primarily, and I deal with lots of other youth pastors, and here's kind of the general theme of how youth pastors have to come up with their messages now. So it goes. Most families come to church or bring their kids or students to church once or twice a month. So, basically, every other week you'll hit a kid. So, plan your messages accordingly. So basically, repeat the same thing twice so that you'll hit the kids that aren't coming. Now, am I bagging on kids and teenagers? No. I'm just stating the reality of what we see at Antioch. They gathered together and they were worshiping. Versus the culture we live in, the waters we swim in, culture says, do what you can do, and if it's an issue then just don't do it. Church is included in that. So if it's easy and it all lines up and the stars align, then we'll come, which means the stars are aligning about every other week or every third week for families to make it to church. Come to church. Here's the other one. Pray expectantly. They were praying, expecting God to work. Now, I know this doesn't happen in any of our small groups. We call them RCs, but I've been a Christian 15 years and I've been in RCs and I've seen a trend. Do you want to hear it? Yes? You have to because I'm speaking. <laughs> Here's what tends to start to dominate small group environments. It's this thing called prayer request time. And you gather and you talk about God's word. Okay, let's talk about prayer requests. Joe, what's your prayer request? Pray for my dad. He's got this thing in his gut. They can't figure it out. Okay, Joe, we'll pray for that. Tanya, well, my neighbor's dog, okay, we're getting a little beyond the circle of what I have actually prayed for, but I've seen that dog when I've been at your house, I'll pray for that dog. <laughs> Ralph, right? Yeah, I'll pray for Ralph. Next, Jimmy, well, my cousin's ex-girlfriend's second husband's stepkid's foster child in Michigan a rat got into their electrical line, <laughs> chewed up the electricity in their house. They don't have any electricity. I can guarantee you I won't pray for that. <laughs> and no one else does either. Except for the one or two like prayer warriors, which most of us aren't. I'd say 99.8% of us are not in that category. What's my point? I just pray for that thing on your own prayer walk. Don't bring it to the small group. And our, people who lead our RCs cultivate that time as a time of expecting God to do something. Because if you just make it an open-ended thing where people can fill it with talking, they will. And you'll be praying for rats in Michigan and the damage they've done to homes. Or you can say, what is this season for? Is this about marriage? Okay, let's pray expectantly for the marriage. Let's pray expectantly for the foster care. Let's pray. Pray expectantly. The last one I have is try fasting this summer. I was super convicted. Fasting is primarily what's highlighted is what this church is doing. And I just don't fast. Because you've got to stop eating, and that's just dumb. <laughs> like, who does that? And yet... God seems to really use those seasons to move. So I bought a book on fasting, and I'm not going to talk about it because the New Testament says don't brag about your fasting, but I'm going to maybe try to fast this summer. Maybe. 
but try fasting for whatever it is God would have you to move towards. So try fast. Those are the first things. And then here's my second question. How flexible are we? It's a weird question too. What do I mean by that? I mean, Barnabas and Saul are the people highlighted in this passage. And I just want you to just see some subtle things that the author, Luke, puts into this. And then the people who have kind of put headings on this. If you read above chapter, verse 1 of chapter 13, it says, Barnabas and Saul sent off. That's the heading if you have a Bible with headings. And then below verse 3, it says, Barnabas and Saul on Cyprus. Okay? Barnabas is from Cyprus. And then below verse 12, Paul and Barnabas at Antioch. Barnabas goes to his hometown where if anyone was going to be known, it'd be him. And in that season, the shift happens. Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul were in Cyprus, the hometown of Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas. That's interesting that he was flexible enough to say, titles don't matter. I just want to be flexible. I want to be used as God wants to use me. Because the fact that he even came towards me, that song we just sang, how can it be? That's Barnabas. Saul, this is super subtle, but go to verse 9. We read it a little earlier. But it says, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And then we saw the interaction there. Saul, who was also called Paul, that's the dividing moment. Paul is never again referred to as Saul. Saul's his Jewish name. Paul's his Roman name name and on this missionary movement Saul the Jew who is proud of being Jewish and loves his Jewish heritage sets his Jewishness aside in his name I'm Paul the Roman who happens to be Jewish they were flexible their titles their names the priority of which people looked at them with it's just fascinating to me I mean, I tried to think of, okay, how am I going to wrestle with this? And I know how this works in my life. I'm 34. I got saved. Late teens. And the music I love in a church setting is exactly what we do here. Some guy with a guitar, girl with a guitar, some side singer singing, and then somebody on drums just killing it. That's... That's my, that's my jam, as the young people say, or maybe used to say, or maybe never said. <laughs> that's all I know, and that's what fills my soul. Just guitar, simple music, sometimes hymns if you want to mix in hymns, but I didn't grow up in church, so hymns aren't you know, on my radar. But I love it. And I'm a youth pastor now. And what is all the music like now, both in the world of just normal music we listen to on the radio and then in the church world. It is all electronic. We don't have the Brazeltons of the world anymore. Maybe he's kind of way backstage. We got somebody on an iPad making electronic music. Ding, 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 ding. I hate it. So like Saul, he had to say, I'm Paul now. And Barnabas, I'm not number one, I'm number two now. I've got to decide for my youth ministry, for the youth ministry here, do I want to be comfortable 
and what's good to me, or do I want to serve the people God's called me to serve? And I'm not telling you I've landed on a good decision, because it's a wrestle. How flexible are we to give up what we love? I'll end on this story. Here's what I noticed with older folks. I grew up in Peoria. My mom owned a restaurant in Sun City. So most of like the influential people in my life have always been like four decades older than me. So I love to be around older folks. I listen. I listen even when I'm not really, I just, I love their input in life. And here's just an interesting thing I've noticed. There are some grandparents who like parented a certain way, like harsh, disciplinary, who they get a little older and now they have grandkids and they're like, just chill out a little bit. <laughs> I was with my best friend who grew up since kindergarten. His dad was intense. He disciplined everyone in the neighborhood, especially his boys. Just let him have it. And my best friend now has two sons and he stuck them in time out once. His dad's like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> e easy. He's like, do I have to get out the 15 belts that you broke on my behind? He's like, ah, just, just take it easy, son. What? And those same people, as they age, there's a tendency in their church, in their clubs, the places where they're comfortable, rather than thinking like that, they get more and more nostalgic and they think, oh, I just wish church was like the days of old. Here's what I notice. When the, parent, the parents that are no grandparents are thinking, they're thinking through two filters. Grace in their failures, I did a lot wrong, and love. I just love that little kid. And I just want him to be loved. And I just want to know he's loved. All that other stuff that I camped out on, the people with the deepest parenting convictions are the people in the room that don't have kids yet. That's just how it works. The grandparents... <laughs> Like, ah, I had 46 convictions, and I just want him to be loved. Yet the church person thinks, what made me comfortable? And I'm in that camp. I don't think this is an older generation. This is a 30-something question for our church. We're starting to get comfortable. We like how church feels. This is our church feel. Are we willing to set it aside because we love people? The Apostle Paul has an interesting passage I want to read to us and end on. It's talking to the church at Philippi. He's kind of weighing his Jewishness versus what's really important. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless but whatever I gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord he was the persecutor of the church all that mattered was that the Lord knew him and he wanted others to know him. And this passage ends. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of this Lord, of this man, Paul, who spoke about actually knowing God. That's why we exist. Antioch existed because God knew them. And it's not meant to be kept there. It's meant to keep moving. How ready are we? Don't overthink it. Just show up with an expectation in your heart. How flexible are we? Are we ready to change things that are near and dear to us 
for the sake of those who don't know him yet. Let's pray. Father, thank you for knowing me. That song we start off with, with how can it be? That's the, the song of our hearts as Christians. How can it be? We're stained and guilty, full of shame, full of guilt. And yet you come towards us and we know you. You know Paul, you know Barnabas, you know us. And what a sweet thing it is to know you in this relationship. So God, be with us as a church. Pray that the traditions and the rituals and things that we would prioritize in a church left to ourselves would always be kept in check by a people who want to hear from your spirit and move to those who have yet to be astonished by you. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.